the first time I ever drank, I got into a liquor cabinet with my girlfriend and I drank until I fell on my face and broke my nose. I mean, I was like, I was just one of those waiting where the, my disease was just sitting inside of me, just waiting until I added something. Welcome to Voices of Recovery. I'm your host, Jackie Danziger. And this is part one of our two-part season finale. The voice you just heard there belongs to Lori, the dynamic subject of these last two episodes. I was definitely raised in one of those families where there was the big pink elephant in the middle of the room and nobody talked about it. Well, I was kind of the pink elephant. I remember, well, I had fallen, broke my nose. I was hysterical. Um, I'm sure that my father... They knew what was going on, but they, we just kind of didn't talk about it. It was really kind of weird, you know. They didn't ask me, were you drunk? You're drunk, <laughs> you know. You're drunk. <laughs> and was, I don't remember that. She's seen it all, and she tells it like it is with few apologies. Like Brennan, whom we spoke to in episode two, Lori experienced trauma at a young age. And like Brennan, she developed a quick wit and a sharp tongue. We met up, and I asked her to introduce herself. My name's Lori. I'm um, 51. I have five kids and three grandkids. I volunteer at a pit bull rescue, so I help rescue pit bulls. And I own a pit bull named Angel. Tell me, where do you feel like your story begins? I think my story begins when I was just a little kid. Hold on a second. Yeah. How graphic do you want me to get? Because, I mean... You know, because my story can be a bit brutal. Lori just did it for us. But her story needs a trigger warning. This next section describes a childhood trauma. And if you prefer to skip the details, fast forward about 60 seconds. So do you want me to start over? Well, <laughs> you, yeah, let's just start from, okay. you know, Lori, where, where does your story begin? Okay. Well, I think my story begins when I was just a little kid. I remember always feeling different. I remember having unrealistic fears as a, as a little girl. Um, when I was about five years old, I was um, molested by three teenagers. And I think that was when um, my world really shifted. It was one of those things where I was playing in the park with one of my friends and they, um, I was in this little jungle gym and they just came in and started asking me questions that a five-year-old doesn't understand. And then started touching me inappropriately, and it deeply affected me. Nobody acknowledged that that happened to me. Nobody asked me if I was okay. I remember as this little kid watching police and my parents and all these things, but nobody asked me if it was okay, so, or if I was okay. So I remember, I think I just put that in a box, but it affected me for the rest of my life, really. I think that I probably did think about it from time to time, but I would just shove it back. Um, I felt like, and I think this is what was kind of told to me because this is what I grew up believing. Well, they didn't rape you. So you weren't, you know, so it's fine, you know, but you didn't, they didn't rape you. Well, but they stole my innocence at age five. So it, it, de it deeply affected me. I started having terrible nightmares. I was terribly afraid of like the dark, um, being alone, um, being alone, but then not wanting to be around anyone. Um, I think it, it started to affect me at school. It started to affect, um, 
my relationships with my family, with little friends. Um, but like I said, I think I kind of put it in that box until um, um, we moved from where I was born and raised and um, we moved to Oregon and that was when things kind of really fell apart for me. In fifth grade, Lori was introduced to alcohol and she took to it immediately. In spite of the broken nose that accompanied her first binge, she didn't know it at the time, but she was looking for anything to cope with the pain of that early trauma. By the time she was a teenager, her primary coping mechanisms had become a dangerous combination of binge drinking and self-harm. It was usually when I was drunk, or I'd been drinking. It was um, usually when I was alone. When I drank, I was either really sad or really violent. So it was one of the sad times. And I just was like, you know, sometimes it would be out of self-hatred. I hate you and I want to hurt you. And other times it was like, I'll just feel better. So there was always two kind of different things going on. Whether it was sadness or rage, Lori had no healthy outlet for the unresolved feelings over her trauma. And that sort of damage has a way of building up over time. It was pretty classic for me where I'd feel that pressure cooker thing, where I'd be feeling just, and then if I'd cut, that was some relief. There was something that I could control. I could control that I wasn't going to completely lose my mind. Self-harm was only one way she dealt with the mounting pressure. She continued to drink and smoke to numb out whenever possible. One of the themes of this season has been how addiction is a disease of loneliness. Lori's story is no different. And she was always looking for a stronger antidote for that isolation. You know, when you're younger, you kind of use whenever you can get your hands on things. So we could sneak alcohol. You know, I smoked a lot of pot. Um, you know, uh, smoked a lot of cigarettes, um, stole a lot of things, you know, just kind of was starting the beginning of the lifestyle, so to speak. Um, and I continued that off and on, like through high school, through junior high, through high school until I, um, was introduced to crystal meth and then it was on and I was 18. I remember the first time I ever did crystal, I'd met this girl at Lane Community College, and her dad was a meth dealer, and she invited me over, and she said, hey, do you want to try some of this? And I'm like, oh, okay. So um, I did a line of it, and I remember that was the first time in my life that I felt good enough. I felt pretty. I felt smart. I felt like I fit in. All the colors were different. The trees looked better. I mean, I, it was like it was like that is what I had been waiting for. What did that feel like, you know, to have gone so long without having that sense of, of wholeness and goodness to then have it in a rush like that? It was over for me. I mean, the love affair with methamphetamine just began in that first five minutes because it was like, this is how life's supposed to be. This is how I'm supposed to feel instead of angry, hurt, alone, frustrated, wanting to kill myself, wanting to cut myself, wanting to, you know act out violently towards other people. This is, this is it. Once she started meth, things changed drastically and suddenly. My life really changed for the worst because um, I, well, I pretty much just became a train wreck. I mean, all of a sudden, nothing is important anymore. It's supposed to be important. I was sneaking around. I was stealing money from my parents. 
I was um, basically just high all the time and not sleeping and paranoid. And, and so my life got unmanageable really quick. At first, meth felt like it was giving Lori everything she was missing. It filled the void, made her feel pretty and confident, but it also made her feel awake. Very, very awake. You just never slept, you know, and when you don't sleep, things can get pretty weird. <laughs> you know, you kind of create your own reality because, you know, you just don't know what's really happening and what isn't. So, so I just got really sketchy. What's the longest you ever went without sleeping when you were doing crystal meth? I think I stayed awake for almost two weeks once. Two weeks. What, mm -hmm. what is the effect on, on your body and brain when you're not sleeping for two weeks? Probably pretty bad. <laughs> you know, um, I really got into um, cooking, dealing, uh, running chemicals. I mean, I kind of got into the whole gangster scene with it. So not sleeping was pretty normal. What did the gangster scene look like for you? I mean, what, what was your lifestyle like at that point? Dealing dope, running guns, conspiracy theories, you know, who am I going to trust this week? Who am I not? Stealing cars, stealing whatever I wanted, um, whatever we wanted, spending time out in the country, just really being scared to death because I was so high and so paranoid and, you know, it wasn't exactly a lavish lifestyle. Lori got deeper into the meth scene. I asked her how she got involved specifically in making it. How I got involved in cooking it up. Well, let's see. Um, I, you know, when you start getting into it and then you're starting to, you know, you're starting to hang out with people and it was so much easier to cook then because you could get a hold of all the chemicals. I mostly cooked with people, um that had been doing it for a long time. We're like old school tweakers, bikers, scary kind of people. Um, mostly we did it way out in the country. You know, we were, I didn't like, I didn't like to do stuff, be involved in too much in city or in like apartments where people were coming and going all the time. Um, mostly I was the one that assisted. I wasn't usually a lot of times the one actually running the reaction. I was the one that was watching. Um, I've been involved in two blow-ups where the shit got real and we always were and usually cooked in abandoned trailers, you know, and, um, and I've uh, been involved in two where that reaction actually blew up. What happens when, when shit blows up? When shit blows up, you run. Usually you have a warning because the reaction starts to go sideways because you start to see something going in the liquid that ain't right. It's starting to, and I, I always just ran. I wasn't going to try and save it or anything like that because people, people, yeah, people get blown up and die in meth, in meth explosions all the time. So I would just bail. When that happened, was it like the money that you were anticipating coming in from that batch is now gone? Like, how do you, how do you pivot and make it, you know, how do you move past a blow up? You just go get more dope. <laughs> she can laugh about it now. But the stakes of her situation were getting higher and higher. She placed herself at the center of this world, which was as dangerous as it was empowering. When I was dealing drugs and uh, making drugs and, and running around with some really tough people, 
I had felt helpless probably most of my life. And so all of a sudden I was respected. People wanted me around because I was the dope man. I felt incredibly powerful. Um, I felt like I had power over people because I had the bag. And I did. And I got very mean. And I was very um, heartless in some ways. And that was, you know, I'd always had this real too sensitive of a spirit. I got my heart broken and I was too sensitive. So these drugs just made that numb, you know, made it so that I could at least function and not really care about people as much. How did you protect yourself or even just put up the front that you could protect yourself? I just had an energy about me. Um, I carried myself in a manner that people, I think that people are afraid of someone who's not afraid to die. And I think that that was the energy that I presented. And those people are crazy because I didn't, I really didn't care. So there's a different level of fear around people like that because we'll do anything because we're not afraid. In the drug world, some of them were in awe of it and others wanted to steer clear of it because they weren't, they were, you know, whoa, she's just a little too, too scary for me. But, um, you know, that in the, in the drug world, that's something, you know, that's cool. People think that's cool when you're, you're crazier than everybody else. And at that point, did you feel cool? Yeah, I felt cool. <laughs> I did. Just to step back a little, 18 was a big year for Lori and it represented many turning points. She was introduced to meth, and with that came new identities to juggle. She became a cooker, a user, a powerful dope man. But there's one role that we haven't mentioned yet. At 18, she also became a mother. When I was first really heavy into alcohol and drugs and things, I'd already had Aunt, my son Andrew. I had been strung out on coke up in Portland and I had been uh, hanging out with this guy and got pregnant. I was 18 years old. For some reason, um, I didn't feel like having, a, I didn't want to have an abortion. I left him. I went home with my folks, stayed clean the rest of the pregnancy, and I had Andrew. I really wanted to be a good mom to him. I was for as long as I could, and then it called me back. You know, I wasn't working any type of program or anything like that, and I went back to math. Then the, um, the go-between where he lived with me, and then my parents would come and take him. The first time I went to Serenity Lane, the first time I was like 21, and my parents made me sign, you know, guardianship over to them. And so then that became a big, huge, a lot of reason behind my use was you know, my son was always being taken for good reason. But when you're using, you don't really see it that way. <laughs> Usually, when we tell these stories, we have only the addict's perspective to go on. We've spoken to spouses and parents, but children have always felt off limits due to the age of the addicts that we featured. And we're left to wonder, what happens to those kids while their parents are away? pursuing treatment, or falling deeper into their addiction. For this episode, we had the opportunity to ask those questions. We now introduce you to Lori's adult son, Andrew. Describing that same moment, 
when his mother went into treatment and he went to live with his grandparents. When I was about five is the first time I can remember um, being taken from my mom's apartment by my grandparents who off and on had um, sole custody of me. It's like one of my first vivid memories of walking out of the apartment, like holding my grandma's hand, like looking back and seeing my mom um, distraught and crying. But she, uh, it was it was time for her to give up um, her parenting rights at the time because she was headed in a direction that uh, you probably shouldn't take a five-year-old with you. So uh, I can remember leaving her and it was really hard um, leaving just because um, my dad chose to leave me before I was born. And so it was like my mom was all I had. And so it was really hard for me to leave, but I also knew that she needed to, like at the time I knew that she needed to either make a decision to keep doing what she was doing or hopefully like be my mom again. Andrew was taken out of Lori's custody for good reason. The years leading up to that had been far from stable. It was very chaotic. Uh, there was no uh, structure. There was no schedule. You never knew what was around the corner. Um, so it was, as a little kid, it was really frightening and I was scared a lot of the time. Um, coming home from school, not knowing who was going to be there, or what mom was going to be present. Coming home to either a mom who is coming off of a binge the night before or who is currently um, intoxicated by who knows what drugs and alcohol at the time. I knew that she loved to drink tequila. So it was, it was always a, a battle of what personality was going to be there. Um, the mom that was caring and loving or the mom that was angry and upset or the one that was frightened because she didn't know what she was going to do next. It was definitely wearing on me when I was only five years old. I didn't know the effects of alcohol at the time. Um, so it was, it kind of, I almost felt like maybe it had to do some with me just because, uh, you know, I didn't have a dad. So it was just me and my mom all the time. So I, sometimes I thought it was maybe because of what I was doing or what I wasn't doing. So, um, I always tried to like balance myself out to like maybe see if the way I was acting was the problem, but uh, it wasn't the case. Andrew had to grapple with some very adult problems. On the one hand, he was grateful for the stability he found at his grandparents' house. On the other, he was a little boy who missed his mom. I just knew that my mom needed to get better. She was all I had um, when it came to like direct family, like mom, dad. I didn't have any siblings at the time, so uh, me and my mom were really close. Uh, once I got older, the age gap seemed really small and we were like best friends, so I missed her a lot. Uh, I can remember always wanting to call her and uh, there wasn't always a number to call. It was a sad moment, but it was also like I knew that I was gonna be okay. Was there any part of you that was looking forward to a more stable household? Absolutely. Um, like I said, the chaoticness of living with an alcoholic is really exhausting. And so uh, like that, having the nature and the loving of my grandparents um, was something that I needed at that time for sure, uh, because uh, an alcoholic parent doesn't really have the time to show love when they're so self-absorbed. So it was, uh, it was something that I needed for sure was like to feel loved. I tried really hard to be um, a good mom to him, but I really did not know how to be like physically affectionate. I did not know how to be loving. 
my mother more was like that, and I have always struggled with that kind of stuff. So it was very easy for me to kind of step back and let my mom do stuff, you know, because I just didn't know how. I was drinking, and I was so strung out on meth again, and I think my parents were like, you have to go to treatment. Many people find their way into treatment at the urging, cajoling, or outright demand of others. These forced attempts at recovery tend to be less successful initially, but can be the seeds of a lasting recovery later. For Lori, it was the start of a longer journey. I knew nothing about treatment. I came to treatment with um, a bottle of whiskey and a bottle of tequila in my bag, clanking up the stairs to go to detox because I, that's how I'd always gotten off meth, I drank. And I remember the nurse saying, what's all the noise in your bag? I'm like, well, I brought refreshments. You know, I need this. You know, I need this to get off the meth. And they were like, oh, you know, we'll give all this back to you when you leave. But that, that's just a hilarious story. That's really how naive I was. I thought, well, I don't have a problem with booze. I just need to get off the meth. I was one of the younger people in, in treatment. Most of the other women and men, it seems like we're 30s and over. Um, so that even validated my theory even more that, you know, well, I don't have to quit everything. I, I, the meth is causing some trouble. I'll, you know, I'll give it that. So um, I don't even think that I was planning on. I was, I was planning on trying to stay off the meth but I was not in any way not going to drink. And then once I started kind of coming to and I started listening in these groups and hearing them say I couldn't do anything, and I was thinking, well, maybe you guys can't. I'm only 21 years old. I'm not, not going to do anything, <laughs> you know? She made it through treatment, but wasn't committed to complete sobriety. She returned to her parents' house promising to work her program but her inner addict was still waiting. I think I did lay low, you know, good addict, and we can lay low for a while until we can start getting our feet back under us and making sure we feel pretty good. And then I think I started sneak drinking. You know, um, my mom and dad, my mom especially, she liked to drink rum and Coke at night. Just, you know, she's definitely not an alcoholic. So I think that I kind of could sneak more because she was already kind of drinking, you know. Um, but, you know, it doesn't take long. It didn't take long for me to get back to the meth because alcohol always leads me back. I tried, but I just, you know, then I went to work 40 hours a week and then I was starting to sneak around and then I was doing meth again, so... Andrew's life settled down a bit while his mother was in treatment. Even after she came to live with them and started using again, there was a sense of normalcy as long as they were still under his grandparents' roof. But eventually they moved out and left the stability of that household behind. Being the first child, your grandparents, um, they kind of go out of their way for you. So it was, uh, you know, I became accustomed to that, I guess you'd say, being, I guess you'd call it spoiled. So um, it was, um, it was definitely another change. It was, uh, you know, I think all the changes back and forth helped me learn how to chameleonize in the world. It was always changing. It was like nothing was stable. Um, we were, we'd move, um, my mom would relapse. And so it was just like I had to learn to adapt to my situations. Like I mentioned, me and my mom were best friends. So I would put on shows for different people and my grandparents, like everything's okay. And then I'd like go home and have to deal with you know, insane things. And uh, 
So it was, it, I think even at a young age, I was picking up like how to deal with situations and just learn how to kind of take care of myself in whatever situation might be happening. I'd gotten an apartment and I was still drinking. I had Andrew with me and something happened because usually it did. And uh, I just decided I was going to stop. And I actually did. And so things got better. I didn't go to treatment. I just started going to meetings and I got clean. And then I met my first husband and things looked like they were going to get better. We got a place and and all that, but it just um, it spiraled pretty quickly out of control. We met at a meeting, mm-hmm. yeah, and he he was um, one of those people that was um, that this, that they talk about in the big book about they can't tell the truth. They're just really constitutionally incapable. Um, so he was using and drinking on the sly off and on and always, and it was always that I was crazy because I would be like, I think something's going on here. I ignored all the warning signs. I, because I was newly clean and sober and all I'd ever wanted to be was married and good enough and a wife and a mom. And, and so I ignored all the big red flags going up and I was like, oh no, that can't be true about him, (laughs) you know, and all that. So, I mean, he just kind of talked to me like I was just a piece of shit, you know, and not, he, obviously he had many issues with women and, um, I had really low self-esteem. So perfect storm. So I was not using drugs or alcohol, but I was acting out in other types of behaviors, abusive behaviors, being abused, keeping lots of secrets. And I proceeded to have three more kids with him. So I stayed clean for eight years, but I was strung out on this guy, this husband of mine. And I had, you know, did the pretty, you know, battered woman thing, you know, three babies, five years. Did your pregnancies offer you any kind of protection? Would he abuse you while you were pregnant? Well, there was always abuse. Him and I were terrible together. I mean, just, you know, I don't even know what that, looking back, I'm just like, I'm surprised that we didn't kill each other, really, for real. I mean, and so I think that that's why battered women stay pregnant so much. Well, first of all, there's no self-care. I did not know how to take care of myself. Going and getting birth control, I mean, I just didn't, you know. But it, it so I think that there's that, he'll love me now, you know. He'll think, you know, I'm carrying his child. He's going to be nicer to me and stuff. But it just kind of seems like things spiral even more out of control. I think I was pretty checked out. Um, I was so wrapped up in trying to keep my house in order and keep these little kids safe and fed. And I was dealing with their dad coming in and out of the picture. You know, um, he was having constant affairs, leaving, um, trying, you know, we'd try and get back together. It never worked out. So I was living in fear of what he was going to do if he was going to come and try and steal the kids from me, if he was going to come and kill me and take the kids. So I had all of this stuff going on. By this time, Andrew was about 12 years old and in seventh grade. Old enough to know what was going on, but still too young to really process the abuse he witnessed. He and Lori tried to protect each other. I just know that my mom was like me, like... We were ride or dies. Like, it's like, you mess with one of us, you get both of us. In episode two, Brennan talked to us about how amnesia can be a symptom of childhood trauma. 
children often block out or discard memories that are painful, confusing, or simply don't fit into their model of what their life is supposed to look like. Like Brennan, Andrew's childhood is missing some memories. Um, I have a lot of gaps in my memory from like survival mode is what I like to think is what happened, like protecting myself. I do have like a memory of getting beat up by my stepdad. And I don't know if my mom had relapsed yet at that point, but I know that he had. Andrew's stepdad um, was at my house and we were having dinner or something. He got, he must have been loaded, but he grabbed Andrew. He was going after my mom and she had got out the sliding glass door. And so I shut it and locked it and told him that if he was going to try and like hurt my mom, he's going to have to go through me. And uh, that's when he picked me up by the throat against the wall. And uh, I don't know how I got out of that. Uh, I don't know if my mom came back in or if I somehow got out of that. But um, I guess that was the last straw for me about keeping quiet. That was my emotional bottom. Well, Andrew finally broke the chain of silence and he told a teacher. And um, then DHS was at my door. How did you feel when that happened? I mean, first of all, did, did you have any kind of warning that they were going to show up to your door? Mm -mm. Because Andrew didn't tell me, he told. So all of a sudden, DH, and I remember I was like, hey, what's up? You know, because I just didn't get it. You know, I didn't know who DHS was. I'd never been involved with them. I didn't really know. And, and then I got the gist pretty quick. Do you remember what your reaction was? Was it to be angry at him or was it to be frightened that you might lose your kids? I think I was totally floored. I was not mad at Andrew. I was totally not mad at Andrew. Probably in some way I was relieved. You know, I was kind of relieved. Like, whew, somebody finally said something. Somebody's finally, you know. And now I'm being forced to do something. Um, it was a really strange day because... Those two ladies hadn't been gone 20 minutes, and my ex-husband showed up at the door, and luckily I had it locked. And I said, I can't let you in. DHS was just here. If they see you here, they'll, they'll take the boys from me. And he was all um, coked up, and he it was like out of a scary movie because I had a big house, and he started running to every window, every door, and I would just beat him like three seconds before I could get it locked or get it shut so he couldn't get in. And then he started, of course, trying to break in my sliding glass door. So I called the police and I'd never called the police on him ever. And um, he was arrested. He was uh, he was wanted on some stuff, I guess. And, um, and he um, went to jail and then they sent him right up to prison because he was, you know, they were been look, looking for him. And I think... It wasn't probably a month after he went to prison that I got loaded again. I think I'd been in relapse for a couple of years. You know, I was still kind of involved in, well, I was still involved in um, NA, but I wasn't telling the truth about things. I was, um, I went to the doctor and um, because I was always having all these headaches and the doctor hadn't read my file and she offered me pain medicine. And usually, like today, I'd be like, whoa, that's not necessary. But because of where I was at, I was like, well, what are you thinking? Lori walked out of her doctor's office with a prescription for 120 pain pills, along with some muscle relaxants. Off I went. And I tried real hard. I was going to take them as prescribed. And that lasted not so 
wasn't telling, talking to people in my support group, wasn't telling anybody, I'm taking these pain pills, I'm taking these muscle relaxants. I'm out of control with them. She continued abusing the pills, and it wasn't long until she relapsed completely and added alcohol to the mix. I was sitting in my van, because I had a damn minivan, because I had so many kids, and I'd bought like three wine coolers, because when I got sober, they hadn't, didn't even have wine coolers yet. But I remember I was in the dark, in the Payless parking lot off of Willamette, sitting in my dark van, drinking a wine cooler and smoking a cigarette and thinking, well, this is weird, you know, because really, if there's nothing to be ashamed of, why are you sitting in your van? Why aren't you just sitting in your living room having a wine cooler? And so then I tried to convince other people that I had, you know, I'd been so, I'd been clean long enough that I didn't have a problem. So I could drink, you know, it wasn't going to be a problem for me. Yeah, my mom was clean for almost eight years until I was 13. Um, I remember we were at the beach um, when my grandparents had a beach house and we were, we parked in this parking lot and we're like walking to meet my grandparents for lunch at Cannon Beach. And my, I can remember distinctly my mom asking me, do you, is it all right with you if I start drinking again? And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, I mean, if you can control it, yeah, sure, whatever. Like, I'm 13, I have no idea. It, man, it was. it's just like they say, you know, your, your disease is just sitting out there just waiting for you to pick back up so it can be right where it was. And that's when she relapsed when I was 13, and it was, uh, it was way worse than when I was five. This lady that did my nails, I always knew she was a tweaker. I knew she was always kind of tweaking, but I always just didn't really care about it. And I went to have my nails done, and I remember I looked at her, and, and she was high, and I said to her, I said, I said, hey, is, is that pretty good stuff? And, and she just said, do you want some? And she walked into the back room and made me a bag up, and it was on. Did you know what you were doing at that, at that point? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I knew that I wanted to do some meth, and I knew where to get it. I really, you know, my disease convinced me that I was going to get away with it, and nobody was going to notice, and I was just going to do it at night. You know, I was just going to, I was still going to, like, take my kids to school, and I was still going to do all this stuff. I was just going to use some meth. And, of course, that's not how the story goes. It started off, like, pretty, I guess, low-key, um, having three or four bottles in the cupboard and um so it wasn't too bad and then it was like i don't know it was like a flick of the switch that there was wanted felons at our house um drug dealers waiting for money outside my mom's house because she hadn't paid them or people creeping around in our lawn and so it was it was like night and day how fast it just turned i lost a dramatic amount of weight really fast um i started acting irrational, all the things that, you know, money started disappearing, you know, mm -hmm. all the things that happen when we get back on, on the dope, so. And Andrew had been able to sort of break the cycle of silence when he said something about the mm -hmm. abuse. Mm -hmm. Did that sort of open up the gates? Did he feel like he could talk to you when he saw that, that you were using again? Was he aware of that? Um, Andrew knew. Um, you know, Andrew and I kind of grew up together, you know, he saw a lot of things, you know, when he lived with me, he knew him. It's not like him and I sat down and he was like, so mom, are you Dylan meth? <laughs> I mean, what's going on here? It was not unspoken, but yeah, he knew it. He knew. Um, I came downstairs to ask her a question and found her doing lines in the bathroom and I'm like, 
what are you doing? <laughs> like, I thought you were just drinking. And so uh, that was like a wake up call for me. It's like, oh, things are getting kind of out of hand now. Um, the times when I was scared the most was like when I needed things signed to go on field trips or I needed permission from a parent to do things at school and I couldn't wake my mom up to sign a piece of paper. It's like, um, it was getting real old. Like, come on, mom, like, wake up. I just sign the piece of paper and she, like, I couldn't even get a word. And so, um, I ended up forging a lot of my mom's signatures. So, um, luckily it was for school activities, not like checks or anything like that. So, um, I wanted to fix things for her. Uh, just because, like I said, I've said many times, she was all I had. So I wasn't going to let anything come between that. So if I had to go run drug dealers off or, you know, stand up to a wanted felon or whatever, I was more than capable and willing to do such a thing at such a young age. But it's just I felt that I needed to do it because uh, it's my mom. I think Andrew was uh, the born caretaker. I mean, you know, he was older than the other boys. I didn't have any other kids until he was 9 or 10. Um, so I think he was the one that kind of was always watching out for me and the and the boys. Uh, yeah, I felt like I was the parent at 13, 14 years old. Um, you know, keeping everybody safe, keeping people... You know, diapers changed, people fed, because uh, my mom would disappear for hours on end sometimes um, and not come back till the late hours at night. Um, or if she did come back, she was incapacitated to the point where she couldn't take care of anyone, even herself. Uh, I remember putting her to bed a lot because um, she couldn't walk down the stairs. So, yeah, I felt like I felt like a babysitter. I felt like a parent. Uh, I felt like, um, you know, like a lost child. And where do you feel like you learned some of these caregiving skills? Like, I feel like I know grown men who take a minute to figure out how to change their kids' diapers, let alone being able to figure that out as a 13-year-old for a sibling. Like, where do you feel like you summoned those skills? Uh, honestly, from God, <laughs> because uh, I feel like I was born with it um, to be this caregiver, to be to the maximum service to people. So uh, I can always remember, like, holding doors open for people or helping people carry things or this is like part of who I am. So, uh, I just, I see things that need to be done and I just kind of volunteer myself. Later years, it became uh, a, a defect. I was always people pleasing in regards to wanting something else. So it was a hard, it's been a hard balance since then, but it was just like, I knew that it needed to be done and there wasn't a lot of other options at the time. Andrew and I took care of each other. I mean, I'm a, you know, if I felt like anybody was messing with Andrew, I would take it up with them. We took care of each other. You know, not a lot of son-mom relationships are um, so reliant on one um, taking care of the other. Like, I, I took care of my mom all the time. I covered for her all the time. Um, I knew everything that was pretty much going on. You know, he was raised in that environment. You don't talk, you don't trust, you don't feel, you... You don't tell anybody what's going on here. You don't tell people your business. Andrew and Lori may have been close, but both of them freely admit now how bad the situation was in hindsight. Like his mother, Andrew experienced severe trauma at a young age. And like his mother, developed destructive coping mechanisms in his early teens. But 
Where Lori had turned her destruction inward in the form of self-harm, Andrew turned his outward with sudden bursts of violent rage. I was definitely angry. Um, I didn't really see it at the time, uh, but I was I was a big time emotion stuffer. And uh, I always, I, for whatever reason, um, just I think the way that I was brought up and how my mom was raised me and the way that she chose to live her life, I never found it okay to talk about anything. So if anybody ever asked me what was going on, I'm like, oh, nothing, it's all good, I'm fine, you know. So I was really, I would have these outbursts at home where, you know, it might be like playing a video game and it might not go the way I wanted it to go. And then all of a sudden, like I've broken my TV and my controller and my room is just torn to crap. And I'm just like, what happened? I just have like this huge outburst for no reason. And then and it'd be like, okay, I'm good now. I was going to say, do those outbursts sort of feel satisfying? Oh yeah. It was like, it was like, you know, taking off that hundred pound backpack. It's like, oh, that felt so good to just destroy some stuff and just lose my mind for a minute. And then it's like, now nah, I got to deal with this. <laughs> what were the repercussions? Like, was your mom mad or was it just like, oh, great. Now I don't have a television. Oh yeah. It was definitely both. Um, you know, breaking things that cost money to somebody who needs money to, um, push forward their addiction. Uh, you know, it doesn't come, it doesn't come at like, a, oh, that's all right. I'll just get you a new one. Uh, so yeah, it was like, uh, darn it, I did it again. And like, I hated cleaning anyways. So having to pick up my room after I destroyed it and the things that I like to use the most, it was, yeah, it was not a good feeling. Really my only outlet was sports. So I loved to go. I played all every, pretty much every sport I could and I'd be there early and I'd leave late. Uh, just because I loved sports and the dedication to it, but also because I knew I was safe. And it was an escape where I didn't really have to think about what was going on at home. Up until this point, Andrew's story mirrored his mom's in many ways, except for one big one. He never used alcohol or drugs. His commitment to athletics and seeing the consequences of his mom's use had been enough to keep him sober. He thought of himself as a leader. And even when his friends started to experiment, he took a lot of pride in being able to say no. Unfortunately, that all changed when he was 13. It was just like, I don't know, I guess it was just finally that I was just done. Uh, and I had made the decision that, okay, I'll, tr I'll try smoking weed. And um, I remember that experience. Like it was yesterday, taking my, you know, first um, hit of marijuana out of a water pipe and going outside and coughing and puking and coming back inside and like being like, I need another one. That alone is just like, yep, I should have known right then and there that something bad was going to happen. Andrew was right. In fact, a whole series of bad things happened. Next week, we'll pick up where this episode leaves off, in our season finale, where Lori finds herself back in treatment, and Andrew has a choice to make between his own budding alcoholism and addiction and his life. Voices of Recovery was created by Monique and Jackie Danziger and is produced by Serenity Lane Drug and Alcohol Treatment Centers. Writing and production assistance by Monique Danziger. James Tyson is our production coordinator and script supervisor. Our show is edited by me, Jackie Danziger. Our theme and much of the music in this episode was composed by Sammy Gallo 
with additional tracks by George Polly. Thank you, as always, to everyone at Serenity Lane who helps make the show possible. Like us on Facebook and Instagram for teasers and episode extras. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're currently listening so that you can get new episodes every Tuesday in your feed. If you want to support our work or help others find the show, please take a minute to rate and review us. There's a link for that in the show notes. We'll see you next week for more stories of rock bottoms, moments of clarity, and life after addiction.